The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a podcast network and media collective committed to transforming how we engage faith, spirituality, culture, and one another. Find out more by visiting theolabmedia.com. What's up, good people? Welcome back to The Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas Maxwell, and I'm here with Reverend Karen Teresa Ricks, but you can call her KT, and Pastor Samuel Lee White III. Malcolm is out today connecting with family, but he will join us again on Thursday. But we couldn't leave the fourth chair empty, so we've invited my friend, my sister, the Reverend Dr. Lisa M. Weaver to the bench. I'll share more about Lisa in just a few moments, but before that, a quick word for you, our listeners. Now, I believe in acknowledging things openly and honestly and not acting like things aren't happening. So I got to spill a little tea right quick. When we first got started with the podcast, we all committed to a pretty strict quarantine and isolation practice. A lot of our content was recorded in person during these days, wearing masks and sitting six feet apart. Some of you may have heard the masks ruffling against the microphones. As the pandemic carried on and the conditions have worsened, um, we determined that it was more pertinent to record our episodes remotely. So over the last few weeks, we've been transitioning to remote recording to honor our commitments to public health and the safety of our families. All of that is to say, if you've noticed a difference in the audio quality of the last few episodes, we've noticed it too, and we apologize. We are on the verge of getting it exactly right, and in the next few episodes, you should notice a return to cleaner audio to make sure your ears aren't bleeding through each episode. Now, as clean as this audio sounds right now, that is not how this episode is going to sound, but just bear with us. We are really grateful for your patience uh, through this transition as we try to honor safety practices. Now, on today's episode, we are talking about COVID-19 and how it's impacted the church. How have churches changed, if at all? How have churches refused to change? And ultimately, what will this pandemic mean for the church universal? Who and or what will we be when the present chaos has subsided or concluded? I mentioned earlier that we have Dr. Lisa Weaver here on the bench, and she is one of the most brilliant minds I have ever encountered. So you're in for a real treat. Dr. Weaver is a scholar and professor of worship. She likes to call herself a liturgical theologian. I like to call her a liturgical historian. But either way, she seamlessly and effortlessly dances in the worlds of liturgy, theology, and church history. If you are unfamiliar with the word liturgy, stay tuned. We'll explain that a little later on. But for now, just know that it comes from a Greek word that can be literally translated to mean the work of the people. In her research, Lisa focuses on the life of the church, the meaning of the sacraments, and the power of ritual. She is especially interested in black folks and how our lives are impacted by liturgy or the work of the people throughout history and time. I could go on and on and on about Lisa because I love her so much and I'm so glad she's here. But before we get started and before I gush anymore, Lisa, will you say a bit more about your research? My my current research is on the liturgical practices of people of African descent in this country during the colonial period and in their own words. 
I want to look at how they experienced, interpreted, reimagined, and reinterpreted those practices for themselves. There are lots of narratives, documentation from the perspective of the enslaver, but we don't hear the voices of those who were enslaved. We don't get that. And how people of African descent, Africans and African-Americans during this colonial period, how they reinterpreted that provides a hermeneutical lens, how they viewed the world, how they viewed themselves, contra what they were told. And so that's my research. And y'all, that is why I call her brilliant. This is Lisa Weaver, everyone. Welcome to the Mourner's Bench. So to get started, I want to rewind to the month of March of 2020 when the world started shutting down. For each of you, what was the moment that you realized that this pandemic was going to be a huge life-altering event for the church? The biggest thing, I think it's going to be obvious and for most people, is that we were not able to gather. Mm-hmm. The byproduct of gathering exposed, and I might want to use a, a verb more temperate, I can't think of one right now, but exposed the theological and choreography challenges that we have in worship. Hmm. I think that was was the thing, the fact that we can't gather. Yeah. And, and, that, and that the return was not going to be quick. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Lisa. For me, it was almost immediately, to answer your question, Brandon, when the pandemic first started, I was working as a program administrator for the General Board of Global Ministries for the United Methodist Church, where I oversaw a domestic young adult missionary program and also helped oversee an international young adult mission program. Me and a colleague spoke to our supervisors and we said all of these folks we had about 131 people in different countries we said we have to pull them out because if they get stuck where they are we don't know when they'll be able and 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 right now over a year later i think they've got about 30 plus people who have been stuck who should have finished the program a year ago Hmm. who have been stuck and the methodist church has continued to pay their salaries and all of their stuff because they can't go home yeah and i think we knew almost immediately like we have to give these folks an option to go home before people start shutting down their borders before they start saying nobody in or out all of these things i don't know if it has been life altering for the church yet i think that mm. it has certainly been huge unlike the place that you are working sam I, you know the church that i was attending was still thinking we were going to be meeting for worship on the 15th of march they were going As soon as everything shut down, I'm like, we're not going anywhere. My mom lives with me. There isn't any reason why there's a church in the world that's primarily older folks should even be thinking about meeting in person. And so the pastor ultimately went online that Sunday, but but it was a last minute decision. So I think the church and in the conversations that that I witness on Facebook or with folks, I'm not sure it's been life altering yet. People are still trying to do the same thing. They're focused on, on the sermon. They haven't focused on that gathering that you were talking about, Lisa. And and that's the piece that gathering together has been what is missing. And and so I don't think church has altered yet, personally. I'm looking at the word life altering. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And KT, you said it hasn't been life altering because people are still trying to do 
the same thing. They're still looking for those same elements, ways to engage. Do we do we enter? Do we not? The thing that occurs to me is that there are ways in which the pandemic has not been theologically life altering for people of faith, because there is a way in which this period calls us to theologically reexamine everything. What do we mean by the body of Christ? What do we what do we mean by gathering? I mean, we know it mean physically, but what what are the implications of that? And so life altering in terms of our quotidian daily get up, you go here, you go there, or deeply, deep tissue, substantively, theologically reorienting and regrounding life altering, right? Because this is a, this is a crisis. Yeah. And crises generally, normally are catalysts for deep reorienting. Yeah. 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 And so there is a resistance to the life orientation to which we are being called, I think, in many places. That reminds me of what you were saying earlier, Lisa. Like, at the end of the day, this is not the first time the church has experienced a pandemic of sorts or a crisis. Amen. Mm -hmm. It's chaos. Like, if we look at at least the communities of which I've been part, the church doesn't ever deal well with moments of crisis. Like, to me, whether it's first, second, third wave feminism or womanism, at the end of the day, there are many churches still refusing to reorient or alter their theologies in the wake of new information. The SBC just doubled down on its racism, the Southern Baptist Convention, that is, saying that we're going to reject critical race theory. Now, mind you, this denomination was founded because they wanted to make sure that they could theologically keep slaves. And we're in 2021, and just last year, somebody's rejecting critical race theory. So I think there's a way in which churches have failed to respond to or reorient when new information has come in. Have all churches done that? No. But I would say the ones that are stomping the loudest and clapping the hardest are the ones who are refusing to change when the world around them is different. When we were talking earlier about what the pandemic exposes— Mm -hmm. One of the things that it exposes are the places in which theology is held as an idol. Hmm. I know that's a that's a cuss word. No, it ain't. That's a good word right there. But there are some places where places, people uh, in which their theological positions have become idolatrous and where there is idolatry, there's no room for the movement of the Holy Spirit. Lisa, if you will indulge me just for a second, can you say a little more about theology becoming idolatry? Pressure claim, sis. Pressure, pressure claim. Right. Let's take misogyny. That that perhaps because it's personal. Let's go. There is a way in which people, churches, institutions will hold on to this women can't do X. Women are not called to do X because the Bible says, well, let's let let's talk about that. Right. So when you want to have a more robust conversation, they're like, but no, the Bible says and theology comes out of particular hermeneutical lenses. And so for people, institutions who read text in less robust ways, there are ways in which this way is the right way. Mm -hmm. And here is where I have I have a problem. And where where theology becomes idolatry. We will, the church will, preachers will, Christians will say, you know, God is moving, God is active, God is dynamic, God is this ever-living, creative thing. 
And yet, at the same time, you want to tell me that a theological position that that has been the case for 30 years, God has not changed. Mm. How do you reconcile that? I believe idolatry is rooted in fear. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, it is fear because, in my experience, ideological positions are often held by people, institutions, fill in the blank, who adhere to a zero-sum game. If I let women in, we're not going to have any power anymore. If I let blacks in, we're not, whites going to not have power anymore. If I let the Asians uh-huh. and the Hispanics in, mm-hmm. it's a zero-sum game. And yet you say... The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. We claim that there is enough, but there's mm. only enough when it's convenient and lines up with a position that you've held for 30 Come years on. while you still claim yeah. in 2021 that God is moving and active, but you want to you want to bring up your 1971 literalist well. marginally informed <laughs> hermeneutic and context about the Bible. No no ma'am, no sir. And, and so in that way, th- this position that you've held, because the position is the foundation of your security and your anchoring and your mooring, it becomes an idol because you need that more than you need God to keep you. And when your theology, wow. when you have more trust in what you believe, then in the God you claim that can keep you, that's an idol. Mm. I'm sorry. Wow. (laughs) Listen. Wait, Brandon's not back in his chair, Brandon. Let the church say amen. He fell out. I I fell out. I had to fall out. I'm sorry. I had to fall out. (laughs) You you made me fall out. That's a whole word. So we thank you for listening to the Mourner's Bench today. The doors of the church are now open unto you. Wow, that's a whole word. I'm sorry. By candidate for baptism, by Christian experience. (laughs) Lisa, you said so much. I wish so many people were open enough to really hear the words that you're saying and to sit with them and, and to allow themselves to be transformed. Because it's not always that people don't hear or these conversations aren't happening. It's like you say, people are much more committed to holding on to their idolatry. I think about a time that I was in seminary and one of the things that really changed for me, we talked about Dr. Noel Erskine and in class one day he says what they really believe in is bibliolatry. He says they don't worship God. They worship the Bible. And they, and they don't do that well either. No. And I left seminary and would go into these different places and try to talk about the God that superseded the text that is used to describe God. And mm. you, you would have thought I was speaking heresy. People were like, don't you dare say anything about my Bible. And I was just like, okay. But the point that I love that you made, Lisa, is at the end of the day, what we have made of our theology, our sacred text, mm-hmm. is an idol. Is an idol. Mm-hmm. And idolatry is rooted in fear. Mm-hmm. I think you said ideological positions are often held by people who adhere to a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And then you gave us several good examples. And I would say, Mm -hmm. in the midst of this pandemic, everybody who's felt like they have to have the best live stream on a Sunday morning 
and that that live stream has to feel just like Sunday morning mm-hmm. in person, Phil, is adhering to a zero-sum game. Yeah. Well, because T.D. Jakes and Joseph Walker and uh, Cynthia Hale and all these folks are doing their live streams and they're wonderful. And I'm not saying anything shady about anybody. I'm just naming that there are people who are doing sure. live streaming well because they're doing this well. I have to do the same thing. Right. right. And because the time that we have the most people in the pews is on Sunday morning, I have to keep doing the same exact thing. And so in some ways, that sort of fear mindset and that zero sum game is there, too. If I choose to take a moment to pause and figure out what type of reorientation is needed, then I might lose something. Right. One of the things about idolatry and and Pastor Sam, you're saying when you go in and people look at you as if you're speaking heresy and this, you know, if I don't do this the way these big mega churches are doing. One of the things that I don't think we do well as humans, as churches, as academic institutions, as corporations, fill in a blank. We don't tutor and co-journey with people in change. Change is inherently scary to the human. Part of the biggest mistake that people, institutions fill in the blank make is that we don't manage the unseen dynamics of change. When change comes with modulated, regular conversation, both content-wise about the nature of the change while holding people's emotions and anxieties in the change, you move communities and institutions far better than if you just say, well, here's what we're going to do, and there's no conversation. But when you help people to understand that different does not mean more or less, it just means different, it helps to reorient them. But if you are invested in a benefit of the change, uh, you're not going to manage the constituency well. Wow. Ooh, press your claim. Press your claim, honey. Say, say more. <laughs> I'll use my church as an example. I have often had to be the bad guy. We were introducing Laity Sunday, which is typically a Methodist observation where the gifts of the whole people of God are celebrated, the priesthood of all believers. We're going to do Laity Sunday. And there have been announcements and some information, and there was this grumbling, and there was this rumbling. So I was literally just one Sunday, and I was what I call being very economic about the time in the liturgy. I was using the time that the ushers were taking the offering to do some announcements and to do some teaching. I said, I want to address... This mumbling and murmuring I've heard about Laity Sunday. And so I go on to say, Laity Sunday is a celebration of the gifts of the people of God in the body of Christ. There is a way in which, particularly in black church, we can deify pastors and preachers and deacons. And and you need a prayer, you got to call a pastor. You, You can pray for yourself, right? There's a way in which power is invested in particular individuals, and we don't talk about the priesthood of all believers. We don't talk about communion hierarchically ordered. The ground is level at the cross with people that have different positions. I said, so it is a celebration of that. And I am hearing that we're not Methodist, we're becoming Methodist. Listen to what I just said. The celebration of the gifts of the body of Christ. Come on, open your Bible and turn to Ephesians, I think it is. We're talking about the gifts. Is the Bible Methodist? Mm. Did you hear us say... 
that we were going to change our structures and we're going to have elders? Did you hear us say that we were going to now be a part of a conference? Did you hear us say that we were going to abdicate our, our Baptist distinctives of soul freedom and congregational autonomy? This is an invitation for you to listen clearly to the words and mm-hmm. respond and not react. And if you care enough, inquire and don't indict. Mm. Right? And so when we, when we teach people to lean into what we are doing for the health of the community so that it doesn't get eclipsed by a reaction, you will get people to move. Yeah. And we don't do that well because we don't want to take the time it takes to do the teaching and be didactic. We don't do it well because we think people learn by osmosis. We don't do it well because we think, well, I'm the pastor. I'm the bishop. I'm the deacon. I'm the president. I'm the dean. I'm the professor. You do what I say and don't ask. We, 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 we want critically thinking sheep. And then when they think critically, we got a problem. You walk in heavy, heavy. I think what's coming up for me is the reality of the complexity of life itself. We want to hold on to the things that we are comfortable with, the things that are safe. If things start to get ambiguous and the world starts shaking a little bit, we jump right back into what we knew about scripture or about the church or about tradition. I mean, even during this time, I notice in emails and sermons and letters from church leaders, there's a brief acknowledgement of the trying or unprecedented times that we're in. But then boom, we're right back into what's right in front of us, what programming is coming up, what they want us to do, what they want us to give. There's no sitting with folks in the reality of the death and grief that is all around us. I mean, people had trouble with that before the pandemic, but now you can't deny it. The entire world is suffering from this. And people are focused on what the sermon looks like on Sunday and what green screen somebody's got in the background and not the grief upon grief upon grief that people are experiencing. Now, that's not exactly what you were talking about, Lisa, but it was what was washing over me as you were talking. We don't hear enough. It's okay if you're not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We, we don't yep. hear some of you are not ready to move or shift, right? If we're talking mm-hmm. about change. We understand that, that this is hard. It's okay for you to engage this change at your own pace. Ask me some questions. How can I support you? How is this challenging? What do you fear? And to have the courage, the confidence to stand not in your own shoes, but in Christ's shoes, in God's shoes, in the Holy Spirit's shoes, to say, I'm going to come sit with you. We're going to sit on Zoom or the phone, and I may not have the answers, but I'm not going to leave you. Don't, it's not, we we have to model it's not a zero-sum game in word and in deed. Ooh, hold that thought. Let's take a break. (laughs) Hey there. If you are enjoying this conversation with Dr. Lisa Weaver, you are sure to enjoy Theolab Media's upcoming podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters. So many women and girls experience trauma at the hands of their fathers, and then they have to live with it the rest of their lives, oftentimes without access to communities and or resources that can help them heal. 
Jephthah is a biblical character who made a short-sighted promise that resulted in the murder of his daughter. Jephthah's daughter paid the price for her father's lack of wisdom and maturity. Join Theolab Media and Dr. Lisa Weaver this March on a journey toward healing, freedom, and wholeness. Visit theolabmedia.com to learn more. So we've talked a lot about how this has, at least it should be, life and or theologically altering for the church. And we've talked a lot about the ways at least we perceive that people are holding on to their sort of fear responses in terms of not changing and Mm -hmm. responding. And we've now reached the point in the life cycle of this pandemic wherein a vaccine is becoming more widely available. I guess the question that that is stirring for me is, for every single church, pastor, religious leader, mosque, temple, who's just been trying to get back into the building, and just been trying to get back to life pre-pandemic. Is that what we should be doing? Is it even a possibility anymore? And I guess what should we be thinking about as we're preparing to get to a place where we can worship together in person in the near future? Brandon, that's a good question. Starting last year, I was invited to be a, a member of the Ecumenical Consultation on Protocols for Worship, Fellowship, and Sacraments. You're so smart. Say it again. It's the Ecumenical Consultation on Protocols for Worship, Fellowship, and Sacraments. And its mission is to conduct a consultation of public health experts, pastors, theologians, liturgical scholars, and ecclesial leaders to develop medically sound and theologically informed recommendations for in-person worship, sacramental practice, and fellowship in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. We recently had a meeting, and what the consultation is doing is, again, looking ahead. What, what are the next liturgical, sacramental fellowship things coming up in the church, and what is the latest mm-hmm. guidance? So we got an email this week, and we had to respond. In light of this, let's take a vote. Do we want to still invite people to gather in person? Yes or no? And again, one of the last meetings I was on last year because I was responsible for writing the guidelines for Angel Tree Kwanzaa and Watch Night. Right, what does that look like? And so we were talking last month about distance and, and we literally walked through each of the components, right? We walked through the choreography, what happens at this moment? And one of the persons said, well, wait, The last update we got from our team member who works with the CDC is it really should be 16 feet. So if it's 16 feet, then how does that change what we're going to do? For me right now, and I'm so grateful to be on that consultation. You know, sometimes I pick things because I want my ears in the room, right? I want to learn. You got a little ear in her spirit. Right, right, right. You want to be in the room where it happens. But also because of the group of people that were on this consultation, I found it helpful, right? To hear Mm -hmm. cross traditions what people are recommending, but also that they're public health experts. For me right now, I would be hesitant to invite people together Hmm. indoors. Uh, I learned that 
after a room, after people have gathered in a room, no more than 30 minutes, room needs to be clear, can't be used for another three hours. Even after three hours, aerosolized particles are still infective. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Right? So, So when we're talking about gathering, right, there are so many things that need to happen pre, during, and post. Sometimes it is a question of does a community have the resources, financial and human, to make space safe? Yeah. I'm feeling a little reluctant right now if I had to put my stake in the ground from what I know at this point. Even with the vaccines, I think people think that the vaccine is going to be the end-all, be-all. It's going to yeah. heal everything just like they think mm-hmm. the blood of Jesus does. The blood mm-hmm. of Jesus don't heal everything. Sorry. Uh, that's mm-hmm. another podcast. But the Pfizer vaccine that's most widely available, the cold one, like that one is only 95% effective. So if you get the first, once you get the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, you're about 50%, you know, of effective and then when you get the second round then you bump up to about 95 percent with the moderna vaccine the dolly parton one that one's 94.1 percent effective and because of the pace at which the vaccine was produced thanks be to god we're not even sure how long it lasts we're not certain about the long-term impacts of it so like there's still going to be a need to wear masks and there's still going to be a need to practice social distancing even after the vaccine's more widely available. And like we're not even going to talk about the anti-vaxxers and folks who may not want to get the vaccines, and some for very good reasons rooted in histories, black people being used to test vaccines that would make you grow a rat tail. But at the end of the day, I think what I hear you saying is even in May, even in June, even in July, we're still going to have some things to be concerned about. And it's not as if we can just say, great, we can go back to life as usual, because this has been a crisis. This has been a national global trauma of sorts. And we got to reorient regardless. That is correct. I've, I've heard that we're still going to be wearing masks. Yeah. That masks are still going to be needed even during this vaccine rollout, after the vaccine rollout. So someone said through 2021 that we'll still be wearing masks. Yeah. And so then there's, I mean, there's really two questions. One, there is how do we go back to normal and what are the cleaning aspects of it? What are the mask wearing? What are the social distancing? What are those kind of practical things? But can we even go back to normal worship again? Should we even go back to that? Should we go back to the way things were? I don't think the answer is yes. I'm not answering the question, KT, but the the language. I was an English teacher in a former life, so words always kind of land in particular ways, right? People are saying, go back to normal. Yeah. The March 8th world is gone. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. I think I got this from a friend, and then I expanded it. There was normal. There's the now normal. And what's going to be the new normal? And I don't think we should think of those as, you know, very punctiliar places like okay light switch we're in the new normal Mm, it's a little more organic and fluid my goal is to have an article done for march 8th of this year and it's called the benediction of march 8th because march 8th was the last sunday that we were gathered in church where things were quote normal march 11th the cdc declared this coronavirus a pandemic the basic thesis of the of the article is we don't know how many things we gave the benediction to on march 8th my god that we'll never see again some things maybe it was good that we gave them the benediction 
And there are some things that still need to be benedicted. Even, even think about this language of the normal, the now normal. I think a larger question that I have is almost like the question that Brandon asked when we did Hard 101 a few months ago. Who taught you that was normal? Why was that the norm? And should that have been the norm? When we talk about returning to normal, in some cases it was a normal that should have never been and a normal that we don't need to return to. So we don't need to return to the idols, Pastor Sam? Mm. That's what I heard. We don't need to return to the idols, to the misogyny, to this notion that your only encounter with the divine has to happen at the intersection of such and such and such and such on a Sunday morning in a brick and mortar building. Uh, Now, I, I believe in the gathering of the saints, but it doesn't have to be under the steeple. It doesn't have to be with padded pews and glass stained windows, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to figure out how we cultivate and create community outside of what we have been conditioned to believe is holy ground. I mean, as you were saying that, Sam, right, like who told you that was normal, like washed over me to use Katie's white woman language was the creation story, right? Adam and Eve consume of a fruit from a tree Mm -hmm. and when Yahweh, God... Mm. The creator comes back on the scene. This new word pops up out of their vocabulary and they say, well, we naked. We got to hide. And God looks and says, well, who told you you was naked? Who told you that? I mean, and so in some ways I feel like, and I'm not somebody, I'm not like Pastor Sam. I don't want to like make the pandemic like God's way of like destroying the earth. But (laughs) uh, I do feel like this is a moment where we keep throwing out this word normal, normal, normal. And it's kind of like the creator's back on the scene, like, but who told you that was normal? Who told you that? Mm. Mm. That's good, Brandon. That's good. Pastor Sam, to your point about this is holy ground that, you know, we have to worship here to extend your point that that we're often taught that this is the place that we that we understand that this is the place and it can't happen any other place also suggests that we have not sufficiently nurtured and tutored people in their own spirituality such that they can worship, there's corporate worship and there's individual worship, that their spirituality is contingent on an edifice, brick and mortar, and not that spirit that dwells within them and that goes with, again, the omnipresent God. If God is omnipresent, why do we have to meet him, like you say, at the intersection of X and X, right? So there's a way it should help us, inspire us, lead us, fill in the blank with your own verb, to help people cultivate their own spirituality, their own spiritual practices as well, so that they don't feel so bereft, that this is the time to grow them up. We teach them how to pray, right? Because we can't hear pastor pray and I got to wait till Sunday. No, you don't. But in addition to that, their own cultivating their own spirituality, I would love to see communities of faith um, cultivate communities that don't necessarily rely on that that space. Not that I have anything against the church building. I, I was raised in 
in the church for the, for the most part. And I loved my experiences in the church as a young person, some of the activities that we had in the church. If my mom ever listens to these, she's going to be like, boy, if you don't stop talking about me on these podcasts. Uh, but my mom has this tendency, her evangelism amounts to telling people you need to come to church. You know, you need to go to church. You need to come, you know, if, if, if she's chastising my sister or my brother or myself um, and something with our lives were falling apart, she said, you know what your problem is. You need to get to church. And I want people to understand not only can, can church organically be anywhere God is, but that communities of faith do not have to go and meet in this edifice in order to experience the divine. I hear you, Pastor Sam, and I don't disagree. What I want to register is that it's both and because oftentimes people will hear the critique of something as the discarding of it. And I'm, and you're not mm, saying that. Yeah. The church is not defunct. The church is not useless. I don't think the answer is to destroy the church. I think Brandon would disagree with me. But what I think we, we need to do that we don't do well, people, humans, churches, institutions, we don't do well, is we don't do balance well. We don't have balanced perspectives well. We tip the scale, again, zero-sum game, all or nothing. If you're not here, you're not getting this. Well, no. How are individuals and communities interdependent? There's a, a liturgical and theological understanding that the church gathers from all of these different places, right? They come to church on Sunday, right? And we are fed and we are nourished and we are strengthened, right? And we go out back into the world to serve, right? We go and we use those gifts. We become the bread for the world. We become the people who feed the world by faith and works and service. And we go back to get fed. There is a relationship so that we don't get stuck in the building and ignore the world, but we don't go out in the world and think that we don't have a place to go that is our source and food. Just for the record, I don't want to necessarily destroy the church. I think I do want to acknowledge we could Amen. do with a lot fewer churches. Mm. I think that we could also do with a drastic overhaul. Like I think, I think I want the church to have a Phoenix experience. Like what I do want is for the church to to burn down to the ground, but not for the sake of the ashes, but so that something can rise from those ashes that is different than what we've experienced so far that is transformed by the renewing of the fire, transformed by the renewing of their minds, transformed by the renewing of their hearts. Because what we're doing now, I feel like 90% of the churches on the planet are just existing out of fear. And I think the point that you made earlier, hmm. the question is what is the churches and or the pastor's hmm. investment in benefiting from the changes they're espousing? If the transformation of hearts and the connection with Jesus is so that you get more ties or that so your sanctuary looks less empty or so that that person Amen. is now dependent on you for spiritual nourishment. You're not doing the will of God, in my humble opinion. And I feel like that's what 90% of the folks are doing. So if you're not doing that and you happen to be listening as a pastor, just know that I, I pat you on your back. But you don't get to determine that. Only God and the Spirit does. And I don't get to determine that. Only God and the Spirit does. I'm just registering that 90% of y'all <laughs> ain't doing it in my humblest of opinions. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back. This Thursday, we are reversing the hands of time to revisit our first episode ever. 
Now, before you decide to skip Thursday's episode, we aren't talking about a replay of that episode. We are merely revisiting that conversation and providing new perspectives on who God is for each of us and how we learned about God and came to identify God in certain ways. We're also going to talk a little bit about how we came to identify or disidentify with the Christian tradition. So join us on Thursday for an honest, vulnerable, and challenging conversation. But for now, let's head on back to the altar. There's a few folks who need to be on the bench. So let's get back into it. All right, the time is coming, the hour is nigh. We have come once again to the end of an episode and you know that we cannot let you go until we have come back to the altar to tarry for the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost! Some people have been backsliding in this place that is America, in this place that is the earth. And we need to put some of y'all on the morning's bench. Uh, You've been living in sin for far too long. Uh, You've been living in white supremacy for far too long. You've been living in homophobia far far too long. long. You've been living in sexism far too too long. And it's time, somebody say time, (laughs) to sit on a bench uh, and be renewed by the transforming of a mind. Tap seven people and say, be transformed, be transformed, be transformed. Let's go to the bench. Katie Katie over there looking like, what in the holy hell is going on? I'm just playing Katie. Like, (laughs) who's on the bench? I want to pray for him before I put him on the bench or, you know. Well, who are we going to add to the prayer list, Dr. Weaver? <laughs> well, now, now, that's a different <laughs> question. Who, who are we going to add to the prayer list? Um, all of the people who have taken public oaths for the common good to uphold the institutions as outlined in our founding and legal documents and have willfully disregarded them and bent them to their own will and profit. Let the church say amen. Let the church say amen again. Amen. <laughs> well, you, got, you can't just do it twice. You got to have what they say, one for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Ghost. Let the church say amen one more time. One more time. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. Holy Ghost. I'm going to go ahead and put on the bench all of those uh, pastors that do stand up in the pulpit and say, now this is a part of the service that everyone can participate. And in the spirit of what Lisa has said, and, you know, following Jesus' example on the cross, it says, Creator, forgive them for they know not what they do. If there are some people who are just ignorant, don't know what they're doing, we ask for forgiveness. All of you others, go get on the bench, especially if you're just doing that to boost the bottom line. You need to be on the bench. Lisa, earlier you said that Brennan was willing to throw the church out, out, and really, I, I definitely am. I, I, <laughs> I, and and perhaps it's the context that I'm in. White Presbyterian churches, you go there, you put on your best clothes, you, unless you're one of those really kind of progressive con- congregations where you can wear your jeans and a t-shirt. But you go and you put on your best emotional self and you show up and ma- and make everything pretty and worship's all pretty and then you go home and your life is shit and you have no place to hold on to. And mm. so the reality is that we have got to put on that 
understanding of church on the bench. Pastors who want it to look like that, parishioners who want it to look like that, so that what Brandon's talking about, I don't know if I can believe it can happen, but something's got to rise up out of the ashes in order that we might be able to come as our full selves in the brokenness and the grief and all that we have to be in relationship with God and one another. So I'm putting the church, the fake church on the bench. Wow. Will the real church please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know. I think I still struggle. I'm like, if 90% of the churches are the fake church, did you ever have a church? But I'm not taking that today. I'm just saying, it sounds, it sounds like you put the church in America on the bench. I'm happy with at that. At least 90% of them. Yep. So my bench nomination for the day as we are thinking about churches who will eventually go back to in-person worship and people who will be there in the pews, I am putting on the bench every black Baptist church that still uses them baby, little bitty, hard, stale crackers for communion. That's nobody. (laughs) That is not the body. (laughs) that's all I knew growing up. All I knew. And, and they, they, they put them in the little flat plate and they all piled in there together. One, after the pandemic, that's no longer going to be sanitary. I don't need everybody's cracked hands and fingers and fingernails touching my cracker. It's too hard. And I don't want no baby grape juice. And, don't, and do not give me the prepackaged communion either. I need you to figure out. I need Lisa and your committee on worship to figure out how to get some good bread and some good wine for communion after the pandemic. I'm tired of going to church and I am ready to feast on the body of Christ and you give me a hard baby cracker. Are those those things that look like chiclets? Yes! <laughs> we just finished talking about body image. I, I believe that the body of Christ can take on all forms, even the small, stale. No, no, no. I, I override that. <laughs> you don't have the Holy Ghost. I'm putting the crackers on the bench. Every church needs to figure out. Uh, uh, language. Say, <laughs> I've already done that. <laughs> But I'm talking about the communion crackers today and the baby grape juice. I want port wine and I want a nice loaf of bread and we'll have a gluten-free option for KT. Wow. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Before I go, I've got one more thing. If you are listening and enjoying what you hear on the Mourner's Bench, share your favorite episode with a friend. If you have not already done so, follow my lead. Subscribe to the podcast and stay up to date with what's happening on the Mourner's Bench. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, take a moment to rate and review the Mourner's Bench. It's really easy. I've done it, so you can do it as well. All right, we'll be back this Thursday with four questions for the TMB cast. Who is God? Where did you learn that? What is essential to your understanding of God? And what would change if that thing wasn't true? It should be a good one. We'll see you then. Peace.